Well, good morning. Um, thankful that uh, for the invitation to come and worship with you. Always a joy, a privilege to share God's word uh, with you and together. Um, let me open uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would meet us this morning. Um, we ask that you would meet us, those of us who have our doubts and struggles, those who are, um, maybe there's something on our mind and hearts this morning as we come. Pray that you would meet us in those places. Meet us in faith and in places of blessing and of hope, promise. God, may we hear and receive your words of life and grace. Um, be with us, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So I'm going to be reading from Mark um, chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 34. I'll read that. You read that for us this morning. <laughs> and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and, and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. <clears throat> Well, one of the uh, consistent themes in my childhood is that I can invent ways to injure myself. <laughs> and if my parents were here, they could tell you a litany of stories about the time I fell off the bleachers and almost lost an eye, or the time I got my head stuck in the roundabout at the local swimming pool, or uh, the endless times I have almost been hit by a car riding a bike through the neighborhood. I mean, there are many, many instances and it seemed wherever danger alert, I was its, his friend. And one instance I remember quite well um, was with my cousin. Uh, I was over at his house and we decided, he decided to, uh, to challenge me to a game of bedroom basketball. And you know what I'm talking about, right? The, the rubber ball with the hoop on the doorway. Um, and mostly the game consisted of a wrestling match for the ball and running and trying to slam the ball through the hoop. 
Well, um, so happens I secured the ball, and I thought I would, you know, kind of change up my move instead of just a slam dunk. Um, I was going to attempt what I thought would be this amazing sky hook over my head, past him, and through the hoop. But the problem with that is that there's this, this light fixture hovering above my head. Um, and you can imagine um, <laughs> what happened next. And all. Uh, so as I kind of went up for my, my nice sky hook, the ball hit the light fixture. And lo and behold, the next thing I knew, I was on the ground holding my head over my head, <laughs> my hand over my head. Uh, things were definitely hazy, and I got up, my hand on my head, and my cousin, you know, he's asking, you know, are you all right? Are you all right? And uh, soon, you know, I felt the warm streaks come down. Um, we rushed downstairs kind of in, an, in, in, a, in a rush, in a panic, and I met my aunt, who was, first thing she asked was like, why are you guys, guys, stop pranking us, you know? She thought we were joking, that I had, we had kind of contrived some kind of scheme to, uh, to mess with her, but that was not the case. And as soon as she realized that, I saw the, the, the desperation, the frightened, the kind of purpose, intense look on her face. But she realized that I was actually injured in that moment. And this is the same kind of desperation and fear, the sense of urgency that surrounds our text this morning. Perhaps you know this feeling that I'm talking about, this fearful feeling that we are not in control, and that, that sort of desperate longing for something to be right again. And whatever that is, it is the sort of thing that lives in the space between fear and faith that runs pretty deeply through every human being, whether we say it, we believe it, or not. I mean, if you've ever, if you've ever really been afraid of something or if you have ever just felt completely or dangerously or hopelessly out of control of a situation, my guess is that you also thought about God in that moment even just for a little bit, even if it made no sense to you when you thought about him. And the, and the two main characters in the story that we have just read together, they are terribly afraid. And they are terribly, terribly out of control. And they both, in their own tentative and fearful and confused ways, come to Jesus in hope. And his response is to call them out of their fear and into faith. So this is a story that every one of us needs to hear, including me, because I believe that Jesus meets people like us always in that intersection between fear and faith. Some of us here this morning have faced death and mortality, our own mortality or our own potential death. And for others of us, it's be, you know, we have faced these realities in the life of someone we love. And many more of us, I think probably all of us, certainly to one degree or another, have experienced suffering. Either in the glancing quick blows or under the heavy weight of it for a period of time, maybe even for years. And nobody, nobody gets a smooth ride in this world. Well, Jesus, he had been spending time traveling around the Sea of Galilee, teaching and performing miracles along the way. And one of the more common themes that Mark mentions as Jesus travels 
throughout the surrounding region is that great crowds are coming out to see him. And this doesn't all seem that surprising. I mean, amazing things are happening around Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and word gets out. And in this case, there was something to see and for people to talk about. And so the energy and the life of the place that Jesus steps into on the shore is full of anticipation and expectation as to the person of Jesus and what he is doing. And Chicagoans know, know, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Many of us journeyed even by foot down to Wrigley Field the, the night of Game 7 for the celebration ceremony just to experience the life and the energy of what a new and curseless world was like, right? And there's something to behold and couldn't be missed. And this is the sort of energy and, and uh, energy around Jesus. And no matter where he went in the region, there was excitement and buzz and anticipation because of him. And as Jesus is beside the sea with a crowd, Mark tells us that Jairus emerges from the crowd. He falls at the feet of Jesus and he implores him to come and to visit his daughter who is dying. And what is interesting about this encounter is that Jairus isn't just anyone. He isn't just one of the locals. He, he is actually one of the rulers of the local synagogue. He's a person of position, of power and significance in this area around Capernaum. Jairus is at the top of the social ladder. And people like him, religious leaders, they have not taken well to Jesus and his teaching. No, already in Mark they have sought to trap and expose Jesus for calling out the fences that they have built around their spiritual lives to keep out the things that are impure and unclean, not wanting really to break the law. And it comes as a surprise, as a surprise then that a man like this, a person of position and significance in this community, comes to Jesus, and he comes to him in the way that he does. You see, people of significance in this part of the ancient world, they don't fall at the feet of a person like Jesus. I mean, it's a scandalous moment that without question would have stood out to everyone around them. But in that moment of vulnerability, in a moment of desperation, Jairus moves right past the shame. He moves right past what's appropriate and proper. Jairus does what parents do when our children are in danger. He does anything he can. And anything to help his little girl. And you see, in Jairus' world, this isn't a time to examine Jesus' theology. It isn't a time to embrace the cultural and the political norms that exist. It isn't a time for patience to research the best ways to treat and to help his daughter. No, for Jairus, each moment is precious and each step is taken is desperate and full of fear. And the one thing we do know about Jairus is that he thinks Jesus can save his daughter. And in this moment, that is, all, that is all that he needs to know about Jesus. It is all that he needs to know about Jesus for him to come on his knees at the feet of Jesus, begging him to heal his little girl. 
But we don't have to live long to know that Jairus' story is a familiar one to us. Right? It's a familiar to us because we have seen and even perhaps have known the sort of desperation that Jairus experiences. We have seen or we may know what it's like to feel the vulnerability and the fear of a loved one in need of medical help. We know the deep restlessness and that horrible ache in our stomach when a loved one's well-being is beyond our control. And it is never easy knowing that having the best insurance or having the right access or possessing enough money is not enough for our loved ones from the impartial realities of illness. In our moments of desperation, in Jairus' moment of desperation, I love what Mark tells us about Jesus. It's this beautiful in its simplicity. He says that Jesus went with him. Jesus goes with Jairus. He moves with him towards the one he loves who is sick. It doesn't matter who Jairus is. It, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter what tension there might be going on between people like Jairus and Jesus. No, Jesus goes with him because that is who Jesus is. And the miraculous work that Jairus thinks Jesus can do is most certainly a pointer to the kind of world, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing to bear upon this desperate world. A kingdom where those who are sick can be made well again. A kingdom where we love our neighbors, even those who are different than us. A kingdom, as Jesus shows us, that even those who seem like enemies, who may even seek one's ruin, can be loved and cared for. I mean, let me say something about what this encounter means for us. This isn't the first time that Jesus has met someone in need of physical healing, and it won't be the last. But I want to say this, and it's absolutely worth mentioning, that that Jesus' concern is not just for what we might, might call spiritual things. That it means that Jesus cares about our flesh and our bones. It means that Jesus cares about this physical world that we live in. That the kingdom that he is announcing, that the kingdom that he says is at hand, that he is ushering in, that kingdom is not some mystical otherworldly thing. It is about flesh and blood world that you and I live in. And Jairus' beautiful little girl is evidence that this is true. And we can be sure that if a person like Jairus, his daughter, and her well-being matter to Jesus, then even things like, like the alleviation of an illness matter to him. And Jesus calls us to, to a faith that, like him, cares deeply for flesh and for bones. And it looks like concrete, specific things in the world, like caring for the poor and caring for outcasts and and refugees. It looks like caring for those who are sick and, and those who are marginalized. He is remaking the entire creation back into what it meant to be, and he's doing it right now, and you and I are part of it. And it means that the faith that he calls us to is made up of the renewal of absolutely everything that we can see. And when we serve one another and our neighbors around us, we embody the new world, the new kingdom ethic that Jesus has come to create. He did not come to be served, but to serve. So church, that means all of us, you and me, 
are called into the life of service and care. Well, Mark tells us that the crowd that has been with Jesus beside the sea, they decided to follow him on his way to meet Jairus' daughter. And Mark even points out for us that the crowd was kind of all around him. And this may seem like a simple detail to the story, but we quickly realize that there is someone else in the crowd that Mark wants us to know about. There is a woman in the crowd who has heard all the rumors and reports about the work that Jesus has been doing in the region. And Mark tells us that she comes, she comes up from behind Jesus to touch his garments. Mark describes this woman's horrifying and prolonged suffering that she has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And more than that, despite her best efforts, she has spent all that she has on physicians, and instead of getting better, she has gotten worse. As she has her own desperation, not in the immediacy or in the face of death, but a desperation that has been brewed in the cauldron of prolonged disappointment. Absent of any hope that the things will, will get better. For her, she had not simply been suffering from the disease, but from the cures, right? And sometimes for, others, sometimes for us, this is how suffering comes. In the midst of uncertainty. When those who should know, they don't know. When those who have been trained to figure it out, they just can't do it. And uncertainty around our suffering can be the ever-present passenger that tells us or our loved ones that we are different, that we are broken down, that we are diminished, that God has forgotten about us. And the reality for many of us in these uncertain and out-of-control places is that we often feel alone and scared. Well, as if the physical suffering wasn't enough for this woman, her perpetual bleeding would have meant that she was perpetually unclean, and the impurity laws would have meant that she was unable to participate in the social and the religious life of the community. For her to touch someone, it would have meant that they were unclean for a period of time. It meant that she was cast out from her family and from the community. And for 12 years, this is no doubt was, would be devastating, right? I mean, just think about how this woman had to go about her day just, just to do normal stuff like eat. <laughs> I mean, she either had to lie about who she was or what was going on with her, or she had to completely rely on the benevolence of other people, right? And I'm guessing she probably had to do a little bit of both in her everyday life. I mean, she was poor and a woman, so in every dimension of her life, she is an outsider, an outcast, unwelcome in every way in the world around her. And it's hard for many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us, to imagine how alone, how ostracized, how fearful, how shameful this woman felt. The emotional toll of not being able to touch someone else without, without shame or guilt or, or derision. The physical toll of being poor and just trying to make it every single day. The, the overwhelming weight of her own frail and failing mortality that she knows that there is only really one place where this is going to end, right? So it's not insignificant when we read that this woman, despite being unclean, 
sneaked into the crowd because she was convinced that Jesus could heal her. This was gutsy, and it is beautiful. Um, and she's taking a chance on Jesus' power and on Jesus' grace. And of course, she goes, and she goes in, to, in faith to touch Jesus' clothes. So in this way, she is like Jairus at this intersection of faith, of fear and faith. Her hope in Jesus has cut against all the things that would have otherwise kept her away from Jesus, and they're formidable, right? She has no resignation. She has no cynicism. She's right there. And let me just say something about this, and and I think her desire to be close to Jesus, to be near him, to even just to touch him, this desire is wired into every one of us. You don't have to be a Christian to want God in moments like this. You, you just have to be human. <laughs> Our desire as humans to be freed from death, to be freed from all the rancid and violent and polluted accompaniments to death, things like loss and sickness and suffering and loneliness. Our desire to be freed from all of that stuff is at its very core a desire to try to get near to Jesus and to touch him if we can. I know, believe me, uh, I know we don't always call it by that. I know we don't often think of it that way, and maybe it's the first time that you've thought about it that way, that we call it all kinds of things. And to be honest, we respond differently to it at times. Respond to the desire to be free from death and, and suffering, from shame and pain, all kinds of ways that are harmful. Some of us try to medicate ourselves out of it. Some of us try to entertain ourselves into forgetting about it. We work so hard that we don't even have time to think about it, that we, that we seek nonstop pleasure to quench that, that gnawing, plodding, zombie-like presence in our life. We do all kinds of strange things to try, to, to try and forget about our mortality. And you ever wonder why our culture is marketed in, in, to procedures and products to try and take years off of our lives? And you know why we love that stuff, because we want to escape death and all of its horrible companions. We want to cheat every last one of them if we can And you know, we tried most of this stuff, and if not all of this stuff, and I know I have, and so I know, and maybe you know how shaky and thin these things are, that they just don't stand in for the the thing that we really need. Because we all know that deep inside of us as humans, that death and all of the awful tendrils of death in our world, we know deep inside of us that these are the things that only God can handle. We cannot. Church, we desire wholeness and we desire peace because wholeness and peace really exist. (laughs) And if we could just reach out and just touch the hem, maybe we could get some of that. So we look an awful awful lot, lot like this woman. She reaches out and she touches his clothes and the text says that immediately she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And we can ask what it, what, we can ask, was it Jesus' power that rescued the woman? 
or her own faith? Well, clearly, I mean, it's Jesus' power. But he goes on to say, your faith has made you well, right? And the answer must be that faith, though itself powerless, is the channel through which God, God, which Jesus' power can work. Right? He is not a magician or conjuring up tricks by some secret power. No, what, what Mark knows and what all of these miracles and healings are pointing towards is that Jesus is God's son. That he is the one through whom the living God is remaking the world. That universal longing for healing, for wholeness, is beginning to be met. That the blind can see, the lame can walk, the oppressed are set free. Tim Keller, he says it well. He says that the Jesus miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, that they are a promise to our hearts that the world that we want is coming. I know it's easy for us to say that looking back at all the things that Jesus did and we can understand how the mass of people surrounding Jesus maybe not, may not be thinking so introspectively or theologically about, about it. They're just caught up in the wonder of it all. And they're eager to have some of the wonder for themselves and for the people that they love that are around them. And I think most of us, if not all of us, would be the same way around Jesus, Right? That we too would be at this kind of intersection of faith and, and fear. And Jesus, sensing that the healing power has kind of gone out from, the, from, from him, he turns to the crowd and he says, he asks that question, who touched my clothes? And why does Jesus stop and take time and ask this strange question to the crowd? <laughs> why, Jesus, why do you stop and take time with this woman when things are urgent with Jairus's little girl? I mean, I can only imagine the fear and the panic in Jairus's eyes and when Jesus stops walking, right? I mean, his daughter is about to die and Jesus stops to see who touched him in this huge crowd. I mean, it seems like such a costly decision. And his disciples don't know who touched him and they mock him for asking the question. And so Jesus, he scans the crowd until he sees her looking right at him. And in a second, they both know what has passed between them. It's pretty amazing that even though she is healed, this woman is completely terrified. Her plan only half worked. And now in front of all these people, she's going to have to admit that she touched all of these people. She didn't stay out of the way like she should have. She's going to have to admit that she even touched the teacher. <laughs> she touched him. So there she is in fear and trembling on the ground. And I want to ask, what I want to ask is why? Why? Why did Jesus care who touched him? Why did he care enough to stop walking? To put his own reputation on the line? To, risk, to put Jairus' daughter's life at risk. Why couldn't he just let her go? I'll tell you what I think. I think that Jesus wasn't finished caring for this woman. I think that her healing wasn't complete yet. That it wasn't just the disease that needed to be cared for. That it was the alienation and the fear and the ostracism and the shame. Those things needed to be gone. 
They needed to be taken away from that woman. They needed to be destroyed as well. And so this woman who has lived for more than a decade out on the margins, alienated and alone and fearful, living with shame and guilt and scorn and no doubt, probably lots of anger. Jesus knows. Jesus now has her right where he wants her. She is at the center of of everything, whether she likes it or not. (laughs) And everyone is quiet, and she has moved in from the outside, from creeping and from sneaking. And now she's at the center of Jesus' attention. She is at the center of Jesus' affection. And this woman who doesn't have a name, this woman who doesn't have a name, gets a name. He calls her his daughter. And he makes it clear to her, this new daughter, to the crowds and to us, that it wasn't some magic clothes that touched, some magic clothes and touch that healed her. It was her faith in him. It was not some super strong faith, right? It was this kind of sneaky and creepy faith. And I hope I don't, I hope I don't get caught sort of faith. <laughs> But church, it was more than enough. He says, daughter, your faith, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be cured of your disease. Go with peace, with a restored body and a restored life. Church, faith is that conduit of Jesus' healing. It's the conduit of his grace. And we definitely have to reach out. We definitely have to reach out with with our open hands and faith. But you need to know that it doesn't have to be a faith that is turned up to 11. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a faith that other people are going to write books about. Apparently, and I hope I, apparently a I hope I don't get caught sort of faith is more than enough for Jesus. And when we reach out in faith, he meets us with everything we need. And I just want to say this, this woman will not be the last person to look at Jesus and to see his power and to take a chance on his grace. She will not be the last person to do that. And maybe there are some of us here this morning that need to do that. And maybe for the first time or maybe all over again, we need to look at Jesus and think, can he do this for me? And I promise you when you do that, The same Jesus who encountered this woman in the crowd will meet you where you are. He'll meet you when you feel alone. He will meet you when you feel inferior among your peers or at work. The same Jesus will meet you when you feel different every day of your life because of maybe the color of your skin or because you carry with you a hidden illness or ailment or because you struggle with a shape of the size of your body. I promise you, he will meet you where you are. When you need. Jesus meets us in these broken down places because that is who Jesus is. And Mark wants us to see more clearly he is not a traveling wonder worker. He's not a musician. We're interested in cheap parlor tricks. Those would be interesting stories and no doubt would draw a crowd, right? But they would never ever call us out of fear and into faith. Jesus' power here is about his identity. And this act speaks rightfully into our our own fear and disdain of death and loss 
and alienation and shame of, of suffering. It speaks directly into our disdain of those things. And they call people like you and me out of that fear and into faith in him. Because his actions here in our text, they are pointers to who he really is, the, the, the only one who has power to defeat the last enemy and all his filthy companions for good. He can tell Jairus' daughter to get up out of death because he will lie down in death for her. He can take that beautiful woman out from the margins and into the center and take away her suffering and he can take away all her shame and he can bring healing and peace because he's going to go outside of the city to the margins, to the place where all the suffering and shame happens. He's going to take her suffering and shame, her alienation, her disease, and he's going to take it all on his shoulders and be overcome by them for her. And for you and for me. Because his cross and his resurrection is where death will be destroyed. Where death is destroyed. And along with all of its life-taking companions and the sin that birthed it in the first place. And that is who Jesus is. Do not fear, only believe. Let me pray for us. Father, you know better than we know. And we know it pretty intimately. How big fear is in our lives. And how much it drives so much of what we do and how much life it sucks away from us. How much joy it sucks away from us. How much shame it brings. And so we ask, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see Jesus for who he is. The one who calls us out of that and into faith in him because he is the one who will put away all that brings us fear forever. Father, help us to cling to faith in him even if it isn't a super strong one. <laughs> Help us to cling to him in whatever faith we have. Do this for our good and for the good of the broken world around us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>